0: Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Alex B, and we're chatting about Bitcoin long-term security arguments, as well as an update on his thesis about Ethereum centralization with Lido. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy Bitcoin and learn about Bitcoin. Swan is organizing a conference called Pacific Bitcoin, and I'm going to be one of the hosts. It's on this year, November 10th and 11th in LA, California. There'll be thousands of Bitcoiners from around the globe catch up with all the Bitcoiners there, there are so many awesome speakers who are coming also. People like Lynn Alden, Alex Epstein, Corey Clipston, Jan Pritzker and so many more. This conference is going to be optimized for fun with sports, games, music, photo opportunities and high fives. This will be the main event of an overall LA Bitcoin week. So make sure you turn up early because there'll be educational opportunities, meetups, co-working and all sorts of things going on. So come and join us at Pacific Bitcoin. The website is PacificBitcoin.com and use the code Levera to get a discount on your tickets. Are you looking for an easy way to set up your Bitcoin, Lightning or BTC pay server node? Voltage.cloud can help you. Voltage has constructed the leading enterprise-grade lightning solution for Bitcoin builders. So if you need to scale nodes instantly by the thousands, Voltage can help you. They can make it hassle-free for any organization to integrate or build on lightning. Now, this could also apply to you if you want to be a merchant, or perhaps if you are a nomad and you need to run your node out in the cloud, Voltage can help you. You can do it really simply and easily. Just go to their website, it's voltage.cloud. Of course, you can pay with Bitcoin and you will see just how easy and simple it is to set up a node really quickly. Now, that could be your Bitcoin node, your Lightning node, or BTC pay server as a merchant node. So that website is voltage.cloud. The latest and greatest in Bitcoin hardware security is available. Go to coinkite.com. The cold card Mark IV is available for sale. I really like the cold card as it's such a versatile device. You can use it in single signature mode directly plugged to a computer with Sparrow Wallet or you can use it in more advanced setups with a micro SD card or as part of a multi-signature or using BIP85 with child seeds or as part of the seed XOR setup. There's so many different ways you can configure and use your cold card but don't be afraid to get started. You can just go to coinkite.com Order your cold card there and the associated gear, such as the metal seed backup, and just get started with self-custody using hardware security. That's coinkite.com. Alex, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Stefan. It's good to be back here. How are you doing?
0: Doing well. I think there's lots to chat about from uh, Bitcoin arguments, as well as potentially a bit of an update on some of the earlier stuff we were chatting about last time you were on the show. Um, I think it seems topical in let's say the last month or two there's been some discussion about let's call it long-term security arguments for Bitcoin so I think part of what I'm hearing is this argument of oh we you know the there's kind of this fee-pocalypse argument so maybe if you wanted to I guess just recapitulate in your own words how do you view this long-term security argument in relation to Bitcoin?
1: Uh, Absolutely I think I actually made a bit of a case on it um as well last time we spoke and I, I honestly it seems natural of a bear market for uh, for these kinds of topics to uh, uh to come on um it's a little unnerving uh that a lot of the debate is coming on it is coming from our side unfortunately especially from perhaps respected developers not to name uh anyone but um Generally speaking, the argument that I made uh, in the earlier show and I still stick with is that there's a very, very important distinction between the monetary policy aspects of things and the distribution schedule uh, of Bitcoin. And I like to think of it in a way where uh, Satoshi never really designed Bitcoin to have a quote unquote monetary policy. Obviously he was trying to replicate, um, something that's more akin to, to gold uh, and decided to go with a, a, a fixed, uh, supply. And I think the notion of a strict supply is, um, this hugely important shelling point in the entire history and, and, and narrative of Bitcoin. It is effectively the very first and most prominent and perhaps most important meme. In sort of this cultural movement, really, the idea of the hard cap you know twenty one million there's not a whole lot of things that um that you could put uh, before that in terms of like you know what people associate with bitcoin when they think of bitcoin and um when you open up the the discussion when you when I think when you move the uh the overton window uh, of argument uh into a different direction where people try to approximate try to model. A future economy, at least 10 years from now, you know, I, I have to say, always, uh, sort of very much strongly disagree with people that say, Hey, well, we'll only have till what, what is it, 2040 to, uh, to think about this problem. Uh, we're in, in a more practical matter, uh, you know, we're certainly a couple of decades at most away from, um, tr- actively relying on transaction fee for, uh, security of the network
0: but um I, I sorry like just it's to just, let's let's just recapitulate yeah. part of the argument just so people understand like if somebody's new and they're listening i guess part of the argument here is oh look this idea that today right now there's two components to the block reward there's the block subsidy and there's the block as in the transaction fees and so what we're talking about here is over time the block subsidy is coming down and I guess the argument here is, will the transaction fees rise to replace that? And of course, there's different arguments back and forth about whether the transactions are coming up enough to make up for that. But that's kind of the high level argument. Now, as you're rightly saying, people say, oh, that won't matter until 2140. But the other point to be said is that 99% of Bitcoins will be issued by around 2035. So as we stand today in Uh, August 2022, something like 91% of the total number of Bitcoins that will ever be mined has been mined. So I guess that's a little bit of background just for people who are trying to follow along. And so then if you could just spell out some of your thinking on those various arguments.
1: Sure. I think a lot of the commotion around it is created by some of the activity, you know, that uh, we're seeing on other chains um, that are certainly actively generating a a whole lot of uh, a, a fees for, um, the, the miners or slash validators uh, on their alternative network. But I think it's just fundamentally a, a misunderstanding. And it's, it's one that we struggle with throughout Bitcoin's history of being realistic about the, the evolution of, uh, of Bitcoin, um, as a monetary phenomenon. Uh, the idea, you know, that, uh, that we struggle with during the 2016-27 block size debate where there's a lot of focus on payments, uh, because p- people were seeing payments as, as, this utility, uh, that Bitcoin provided. It, it comes from this, um, this idea first and foremost that, uh, strictly holding Bitcoin, um, is not an utility in and of itself because users are incentivized on other networks to, um, leverage their capital in ways that they're not able to, um, uh, on Bitcoin. There's a lot of confusion that prevails and, uh, Gives a sense that Bitcoin might not be serving the purpose that uh, it should and that, um, the monetary incentive for miners to secure the network, um, when the subsidy starts going down are, you know, looking at the data that's available today in terms of what, uh, what transaction fees are on the network. It's, it's in, it certainly seems like a moonshot, uh, for that to be, uh, sustainable. Unfortunately, it really is not sustainable in that the data that we're looking at is, um, uh, from my perspective, mostly noise. I would discard most of the data that, uh, in terms of transaction and activity on the blockchain up until at least late 2017, if, if not late 2018. Um, because the reasons why, uh, we had fee activity during that time was mostly two phenomenons, um, a, a very poorly, uh, well, uh, poorly well scaled infrastructure, um, both from the users, uh, point of view. So when we're talking about wallets um, and, and UX and the fee bumping mechanism uh, or, or just the fee uh, estimation algorithms, uh, those were very poor, uh, generally speaking, as far as uh, certainly, especially within uh, the ecosystems of wallets that were available and how skewed the distribution of transactions per wallet was back then uh, a single entity that wouldn't manage fees um, in a proper way. Uh, would end up congesting the network, you know, in a quite disproportional way uh, than they should really. Um, and the other aspect, obviously, was the the, the network in and of itself. Um, that segwit was a being a big bulb for um, uh, for some of that, and we, we found ways to better utilize uh, the block space in several matter, and so that led to um, historical data that uh, gives the perception uh, today that network is less utilized than it was in the past and and people interpret some sort of trend from that Uh, and there's no clear you know there's no clear indication of course that this trend seems to be reverting quite the opposite fees have been historically low for uh, most most of the last couple of years except for a small little period last year but looking at it uh, from a bigger picture you you really realize that it's just all a matter of bitcoin uh, monetizing uh, and we're still at a very early and speculative cycle where Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin, the idea of Bitcoin payments, uh, remains extremely marginal as much as we'd like to, you know, get ourselves excited about various initiatives, whether it's El Salvador or, um, you know, the growth of Lightning in the grand scheme of things. I think that capital allocators don't look at Bitcoin, uh, certainly as a, as a payment system yet. And so there's no expectation, there should be no expectation that the activity of Bitcoin, at least from a transaction perspective, gains any any more significant traction two years from now, even even perhaps four years from now. And I think that's a view that a lot of people tend to share, um, but they also... At the same time, get get nervous seeing um, some of the activity on. You know, it's 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 all very much gaslighting uh, to a certain uh, to a certain extent, where people are made to believe that these are competitive networks. So people are made to believe that the gain of another uh, is the loss of uh, of Bitcoin. Where I think we should strongly reject that narrative and look at what these systems are for what they are, which is that. Most of them, admittedly, uh, nowadays, 99% of them are not trying to be money. Um, and, um, aside from Ethereum and where some, some of its proponent, proponent are, are certainly still advocating for this. You're looking at an ecosystem of distributed consensus software, basically is, is what I like to think of it as a sort of validators as a service, um, that, that provide opportunities for, uh, you know, permissionless development of, of of markets and and software infrastructure that incentivize certain use cases that are obviously for very good reasons not covered in Bitcoin. Uh, but these are the, these are the kind of activities that are already very prevalent in the fiat world. So there's a very good product market shift for these kinds of software offerings, um, and applications, DeFi, whatever that is. Um, in, in this current historical, historical period, because it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to buy into a certain, like, uh, you don't really need to buy into a fundamental narrative, uh, like, like you need to, to really adopt Bitcoin. You just got to look at it as just another playground uh, within the, the whole financial system where capital allocators can gain an edge and can gain alpha and outperform, especially in this time of inflation and, you know, where everyone is trying to one up each other.
0: Sure. And so there's a lot of different ideas in relation to how the fee market has happened, or let's call it the block space market, if we're being precise. But there were things like in the 2016-17 era, there were people talking about spam on the chains to try to, uh, as part of the argument to for people to preference Bcash. And also, like you said, there were problems around fee estimation and the way people thought about using Bitcoin transactions. A lot of exchanges didn't have batching. They, a lot of them didn't have SegWit. And we saw a very noticeable pressure being taken off the block space load, let's say, when blockchain.info, one of the large on-chain transacting wallets, upgraded to SegWit. Additionally, we saw, I think it's fair to say, previous to a lot of the stablecoin volume that we see nowadays, there was a lot more people in earlier years who were using just Bitcoin natively to move between exchanges and they were very high time preference. They were willing to pay a lot. And so that right. sort of had this effect of pushing up the average fee that people would pay. But I guess it's it's kind of funny in a sense because it's, there's almost cycles moving to this thing because I recall, I think it was around 2016 or seventeen. Vitalik and, and co were making this argument that, oh, look, see, Ethereum has low fees. Look how good we are. you Look at you, Bitcoin people. It's so expensive. It's not accessible. And now it's sort of like the shoe is on the other foot. And now, you know, because back in those days, Bitcoin people were making the argument, oh, look, see, it's just like a restaurant and it's a popular restaurant. Like, you know, nobody says, oh, look, it's too crowded. Nobody goes there. Hang hang on, there's something wrong. Like, obviously, if people are using it, they're paying for that for a reason. And now it's like the shoe is on the other foot. Now we're seeing a lot of the Ethereum people saying, oh, look how much uh, TVL and look how many fees are being paid on Ethereum chain and things like this. Whereas Bitcoin has been relatively cheap in terms of transaction fees. At least that's where it is today. But I think to, to your broader point, it's that we're looking at, I think for many people, they are looking at it like a savings. They're looking at it like a store of value. They're not necessarily looking to transact day to day. Although of course you can do that. And now we have the Lightning Network and and it has improved in reliability now. So I think it's fair to say that you know that use case is being served if you want it. Um, but I think there's all these different points going around. And I think part of the argument around this whole long-range security is this argument that, oh, see, Bitcoin will not have enough people transacting or paying enough fees to give the network some security against a potential attacker. But at least here's the way I'm thinking about it. I'm curious what you think. But the way I'm seeing it is there'll just be so many more people even in 10 or 20 years time who are transacting on bitcoin and they may be doing a lot of channel open and channel closed transactions or refilling transactions to fill their lightning node or they may be doing coin joins if anything it might be the other way around it might be really hard to get your transaction into a block because there's so much competition so at least that's how i'm seeing it going and i, I it's almost like i'm seeing it like the problem might be the other way around but i'm curious what you think no
1: i agree um i mean i i've Repeatedly made the case. I I was actually a little vocal for a while, where uh, I was suggesting that we will uh, that we would be revisiting um, block rewards, you know, upwards of ten bitcoins, you know, higher than uh, the current subsidy for the very simple, for the very simple fact that uh, when you consider a block subs uh, a, sorry a block reward that's purely based off of fees, there's really no ceiling. So I expect there to be some sort of equilibrium where users uh, will opt for different payment mechanism depending on their needs and depending on, you know, their, their, the need for confirmation uh, finality and, and things like that. But the fact of the matter is that once Bitcoin monetizes, it will open up opportunities for, I would guess, most things we can't actually imagine today, right? That's sort of the failure of um uh, Uh, I think that's a repeated failure that that we make uh, with technology is that um, when we're talking about those fundamentally sort of uh, new paradigms, uh, you you know, people always make the argument that you couldn't have possibly imagined Netflix uh, in the early uh, days of of the internet um, because you didn't even have the the infrastructure to to support uh, something like Netflix. And, And so I'm fully in agreement with you that, by the time that Bitcoin's monetized, we will see blocks that will persistently, uh, I imagine, be full, and those transactions will very rarely be um, retail users. Um, will even rarely be strictly single individuals. Um, it'll be a composition of yes, uh, Lightning hubs, settlements, perhaps uh, federated. I expect it to be federated uh, side chains or other other uh, software or consensus sort of this distributed consensus models uh, show me in Mint's that all it'll ultimately settle the transactions of, of their users on, on a network and so it used to be very uh, i don't know it used to be very popular i think it was not i think people very much used to say it'd be very expensive to transact on, on the bitcoin network in the future uh, and i'm still convinced of that and, and i think it'll be because it will provide large it, it's you know it's really not only uh about the, the number of users that are transacting uh but about the the amount of capital that uh, bitcoin is is serving and when you look at the amount of um, of money transacting through the largest uh, global settlement layers today within the fiat system you know you're talking about amounts of money where if, if bitcoin manages to sell that and only takes a, a very i think a, a very conventional or not egregious uh, uh, percentage. Well, let's put it in percentage fee. The, the revenue, the revenue will be there for miners uh, to to continue to add security to the network. And, and really, the, the question is: Is there? Is that really? there's this question of security budget right? So the idea that uh, there is a budget is actually very, I think, hotly con- should be hotly contested because the budget assumes that um, th- there is. Uh, we are able to model and approximate the the actual security that's required for Bitcoin to operate. But in fact, it's really just a, a consequence of the market, right? and and so users will pay for uh, using the network, and whatever demand is derived from that will will translate into fees, and that'll be the amount of security that um, that, that the network requires. Users might underpay. But at which point the prospect of Bitcoin not generating significant fees in the future is is for me fundamentally an idea that lacks creativity and that ultimately sort of betrays a little bit of overall bearishness really on the on the Bitcoin case because if you accept if you accept Bitcoin to be a global standard bearer of value. It seems very logical and self-explanatory to me that uh, the demand for that uh, will, will be massive and uh, probably larger than any possible use case. Right? That that's the important discussion: is the use case of money um dwarfs all of them, and, and the the numbers that we're seeing today in terms of financial activity on alternative networks. Uh, while these are large numbers that are, you know, ballooned by Fake market cap, perhaps not fake, but you know um, very extravagant ways to to estimate the market cap of, of these uh, other crypto tokens and at the end of the day in the grand scheme of things, it's a drop of water in the ocean and so it'll, it'll naturally take time take more time for Bitcoin to establish itself because it you know it attempts to claim the the very biggest use case uh, in, in the financial world
0: yeah, and as you said with security budget that can be a misleading term. And arguably, that was also created by some, essentially some shit coiner who was trying to argue about, you know, the security level. And I think it's also important to point out that even with Bitcoin's halvings, so long as Bitcoin doubles every four years, and of course, it's not going to do that forever, but I'm saying at least in this initial period, then at least even on the subsidy point of view, in fiat terms, the so-called security budget, in, quote, in quotation marks, remains the same. But as you said, I think it's important to actually disaggregate that down into its components because really, what are we talking about here? What we're talking about here is, are you as a miner profitable? And two, are you as a transactor able to get your transaction into a block? Or in this case, if you're doing a lightning channel, etc. to open or close, you need to get that Bitcoin on-chain transaction confirmed into a block to have your channel opened or closed, etc. So that's really what we're talking about. And so if we're talking about security budgets, it's really more appropriate to think of it more from that perspective. And I think once you see it from that point of view, then you can understand that, let's say, if you are a user and you are unable to get your transaction confirmed into a block, well, then the answer is you have to pay more. That's just the answer, isn't it?
1: No, absolutely. And I, I from my perspective, the fallacy of the argument also, and one of the reason why I think it's a massive waste of time is that there really is no alternative. The reason why this this debate is being brought up, of course, uh, one of the main reason why uh, it, it makes a lot of noise is that certain parties and um, certain interests are, are trying to prop up, you know, POS, proof of stake, uh, as an alternative uh, for a future security model. And we can go into details later on into why that's very, very unlikely to be the case. But the other alternative, you know, that um, we brought up, uh, or we actually perhaps didn't mention explicitly, but one of the reasons why we're talking about that today is this idea that's been propped up of uh, of of tail emission the general idea being that as long as the supply is fixed the argument goes that the nature of bitcoin remains the same so it, it wouldn't matter so much whether we have um a, a sorry a fixed supply or uh, a fixed sorry a fixed inflation rate um or um, as long as the model you know the argument is as long as the as the economic model persist and doesn't change then that's good enough um, there's so many reasons why um, that doesn't hold from my point of view but if we're just going to perhaps address the the tell mission argument so fundamentally naive that it kind of befalls me befuddles me that uh, people are actually interpret interpreting it because the the fundamental premise of the argument is that well, it's such small inflation for users 10, 20 years from now that users are not going to care. You know, if you're paying 0.5% uh, inflation, uh, you're not going to mine as, as long as that's the social contract and that's, that's not going to change. But when you're looking at it, you, you can look at it from the user perspective, but what really the problem that they're trying to address is minor security, right? Incentive for miner to secure the network. And so if the share... A value that's being taken away, taken away literally by uh, uh, by users, is small enough that they're not going to air quotes not going to notice. Then why would you assume that this amount of value gives any more incentive for miners to secure the network? Because you just made the argument that it, it was it, it was too small uh, of of a fraction of the monetary supply to to make an impact on on, on the holding of users. So there's, it's a very contradictory um, approach to me, Uh, and and again, it also needs like the it needs to assume that you get it right off, you know, you you, whatever telemission you 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 choose, you you get it right one time, and and you know, then there's no changing it. It's an obvious slippery slope. I think most people understand why it's extremely unlikely that this become even mildly considered in in the future. Though I don't think we're going to stop hearing about it. It's, it just doesn't fundamentally address the problem. It, it, it really does not. So yeah, there, there's really no alternative. Um, we, we bought into a system with, with a promise that, um, there will be an econo- an economy around Bitcoin that will provide enough demand for it to be sustained on a transaction fee model basis. And as far as I'm concerned, if that doesn't work, then we've got to go back to the drawing boards because anything else that I've seen out there just doesn't fit um, the current model and incentive models that, that are required for a you know, global neutral layer of money.
0: Well said. And I particularly like your argument there around the contradiction, because some of the proponents of this whole Taylor mission idea of saying have been arguing both things. They've been saying on one side, oh, look, the users will not really notice," But on the other hand, they're also saying, oh, look, the current system as it is. Oh, no, the fee apocalypse is going to happen and the miners won't have it. Well, pick one. Right. And I, I think you've said that before publicly on Twitter. And, you know, you just made that same argument. I think that's a very strong one. So I think we can pretty much consider most of those arguments dispatched. I think I'll just kind of summarize really it's unethical as well. Like the the users bought in on this premise. Like most of the users, the vast majority of them were told this is the limit and it's never going to change. To now try to like retrospectively, you know, pull the rug out from underneath them and change the rules of the game when there's no need. There's obviously no proven need for this because we believe that it's either Gonna go boom or bust, right? It's you know we obviously most of us are bullish on Bitcoin. We think it's going to go you know very high, and a lot, a lot of people are going to be transacting on Bitcoin, and therefore there will be a lot of transaction fees. So anyway, I think that's probably the the key point on some of that aspect of it. I guess I was also curious as well to get some of your thoughts on this idea, and I know we've spoken about this a bit offline. Is this idea around economic nodes and which nodes really matter because? I think that concept came up particularly in the 2017 block size war debate because there was a discussion around, okay, well, okay, yes, when you run your Bitcoin node, you are in some sense defending your chosen rule set. So as an example for listeners who aren't familiar, when you run your Bitcoin node, you're in a sense, you're asserting what you think Bitcoin really is. And if somebody tries to send you invalid Bitcoin, your node is going to essentially reject that or it won't see that transaction as valid. So I guess... From your perspective, I know you have uh, perhaps a, an interesting point of view on this. So, how what would you how would you frame that idea of which economic nodes matter?
1: Right. I think it's it, it's funny. It's a timely um, and it's very timely that conversation because uh, there was the anniversary, um, as as you probably know, of yeah. course, of, of UASF yesterday, and um, I was I happened to be listening to a couple of uh, I tried to listen every now and then to a couple of Twitter spaces, see if I can get anything out of it. Um, well, I read a couple of articles or saw a bit of comments about it. And it, it seems like a, it, it's an issue that's still very much misunderstood. I actually haven't, unfortunately, I haven't read um, Jonathan Beer's book on the block size debate, and, and maybe I should. And it's unfortunate because I I spent a lot of time in the trenches with, um, with Jonathan uh, back in, 2016 and whatnot um, and actually met him in in Milan back at the scaling scaling Bitcoin conference but anyways I, I think there is still a bit of a you know David versus Goliath narrative that persists and that strikes me as the wrong um, conclusion uh, I think it very much felt like that uh, to a lot of people that were involved but at the end of the day what made us prevail in UASF was that we did in fact, have the lion shares of Bitcoin's economy behind us. Um, in an explicit or implicit way, regardless of, and you know, it's, it's, there's like the way the story is told is the plebs running their nodes versus the big corporations. But to your point of economic nodes, economic nodes, there were plebs behind those nodes that controlled um, a significant portion of, of the Bitcoin monetary supply. And at the end of the day, and or, or all, but also of the, of the, the purchasing power, uh, the actual, not the purchasing power, but the demand, the current demand for Bitcoin in terms of capital that's, uh, yet to be allocated. These are the people that made the difference. And certainly it doesn't take a lot of, you know, this, this game theory of USF. Uh, it doesn't take the majority of these sleeping giants to raise up uh, and say their piece for there to be enough. Disincentive uh, for miners uh, to work against, you know, what appears to be the consensus of the uh, on, on the net, on the network. But I think on any sort of quote-unquote blockchain or distributed monetary system like that, there's still very much an argument that gold, the gold, you know, those who own the gold make the rules because, regardless of uh, the the node that you run, ultimately uh, what. Besides who enforce uh, the rules on the Bitcoin network are those who are act- want active- actively validating transactions and transactions that they're personally involved in. And your influence on the network scales up uh, according to the amount of capital that you validate through your node uh, in a way that's personally involved and in a way that's sovereign. And, and so running a node as, as an act uh, of defense against the network uh, without being financially uh, motivated... Um, and your, you know, the financial motivation scales really around the amount of capital that you've got tied to, the, to this network. It's, it's, it's a, it's a cool story. It's a cool bedtime story to tell, to tell to people, but it gives people the wrong uh, idea about what enforces consensus rules. And it's important because really at the end of the day, there are risk, there are failure models. Um, there are risk models where. If enough capital is captured within a single network, um, it could cause a fork that um, uh, betrays you know the regional thesis to be to be victorious to to essentially to essentially squash uh, the fundamentals. Uh, the fundamentalists, uh, that are trying to protect, uh, you know, the, the original chain. And I think we will see that uh, down the line with, with other blockchain. I think that's something that's likely to happen where even if not a fork, the amount of influence that uh, certain interests might have on the capital uh, infrastructure of the network gives them disproportional influence over some of the decision making uh, with regards to protocol design. And, you know, where things like whatever, like uh, security models uh, might, might be involved. So I think it's a distinction that's uh, worth keeping in mind uh, when considering the game theory and, uh, and sort of the incentive model that, that makes Bitcoin tick.
0: Right. And so I guess just to summarize and paraphrase a, r- a little bit, just for beginner listeners, I think part of the point is when people are new, sometimes they get a perception that, oh, if I just run this Bitcoin node, that's kind of defending the network in some way. Well, not really. It's more like if you are using that node in a meaningful way. And the best way usually is if, in this case, if you are receiving Bitcoin into your, you know, onto your wallet that's validated by this Bitcoin node, and you are ideally rejecting invalid coin so you know I you know my node is rejecting Bcash or it's not it's it doesn't see those b cash transactions as valid and so in that sense and if you are an economic actor in the network who is receiving a lot of coins and validating through your node then in that sense that's when you are helping enforce the consensus and enforce the validation in the network so I would you say that's kind of like a, a fair summary of what you're saying or how would you modify that
1: uh, no, I think that's a fair summary. And I, I, I think one of the, uh, actually one of the tangent to that that point that I like to make, this distinction is very important also because um, there, there's a strong um, tendency to underestimate the power over consensus that a user who holds a lot of Bitcoin but doesn't necessarily validate um, uh, their own transaction I, there are scenarios where you want you, you actually for example take for example the, the block size debate where it's certainly bitcoin uh, blockchain.info you know were processed processing like uh, a third of the, the actual transactions uh, on the network at the time but the important thing to uh, to understand is they were doing it by proxy and, and at the end of the day an actor that's not necessarily always validating his own transaction uh, with a node still has the opportunity to do so if there's a call for it, if there's a need for it. Um, and obviously that involves education, people understanding the importance of sovereignty and, and things like that. But it's important to point out that I guess ultimately there is, there is a strong uh, argument to be made that those people who own large quantities of Bitcoin can still influence consensus in different ways that are not direct even without running uh, their own node because they have a financial stake in the network they can make financial decisions on the market and that has a, a huge influence on you know we saw um, we saw people make the argument that um some of the trading activity with uh bitcoin cash futures uh, and associated force uh during um uh, during 2017 2018 a lot of people made the argument that um this is what scared off the miners. You know, people saw that there was no actual demand, um, and that's danger It's a bit of a dangerous argument to make, and, and it, it, it's it's one of the reasons why people weren't actually all that keen with those kinds of games, if you will, because it's very easily manip- manipulated. I think Bitcoin was actually very, very fortunate that it found itself in a time where uh, it was still small enough, and you know, the liquidity and the, you know, the whole financial degenerate infrastructure around Bitcoin wasn't. As large as it was, because if it would have happened during, you know, this last cycle, I think there would have been a lot more incentive, uh, for, for people to try and manipulate opinions via those, those future markets. And unfortunately, they're able to, they're, they're able to do it, whether or not, whether, whether they own Bitcoin or not, perhaps live pay hey, for Bitcoin or, you know, or things like that. But I'm, I'm not making a point that, uh, running a node is, is, um, I think it's optional, certainly. But I, I'm not also making the point that people shouldn't be running their own nodes. I, I think if they want to, as an educational exercise, they absolutely should. I think every Bitcoin user should get the experience to run their node within, you know, the the their the evolution through Bitcoin. But but certainly, it's not a prerequisite. It doesn't make you more of a Bitcoiner if you're running a your node than necessarily somebody else. I personally don't actively run a node, and I haven't for the last couple of years. One and one of the main reasons is really that I have. I really have no source of revenue or, or, or income that doesn't come from a party that, that I trust. And I do trust, you know, people that I do business with to a certain extent. And I have plenty of recourse, uh, if, uh, like there's no opportunity for these party to, to double spend, you know, for example. And, and I have recourse if, uh, if, if I don't receive the funds. So it's not, it's not absolutely necessary. There's no, no, there's no, you know, no true Scotsman. Uh, when it comes to Bitcoin, running a node is a, an, an individual choice. And it I think overall, my point is it, it's, it perhaps is overstated uh, sometimes in terms of what effect it has uh, on the consensus of the
0: network. Back to the show in a moment. Are you involved in Bitcoin mining? Make sure you check out Brains.com. Brains OS Plus is their firmware that allows you to use the auto-tuning feature. This can increase the hash rate on your Bitcoin ASIC machines. You can improve your efficiency by as much as 25%, and you can mine on any pool or get 0% pool fees on pool. Now, they've got a range of supported models. Go to the website and you can check the latest. But so far, they have S19, S19 Pro, S19J, S19J Pro, and some of the other S17 models. They've also got WattsMiner M20S and other AntMiner X19 models in the pipeline. So go to the website at brains.com and you can check out BrainsOS Plus firmware for your Bitcoin mining ASIC. Mempool.space is the Bitcoin Explorer built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. It features real time transaction tracking and mempool visualization so you can quickly get the information you need about your Bitcoin transactions. It is available over Tor and also completely open source so you can run it on your own. You can run your own Mempool Explorer at home on a Raspberry Pi or otherwise with just one click. Over 1 million people use mempool.space every month, and the project is operated freely for the benefit of the Bitcoin community without ads or third-party trackers of any kind. mempool.space shows you multiple layers of the Bitcoin economy. You can go try it out today over at mempool.space. With all the hacks that we see going on both in the Bitcoin world and in the so-called crypto world, you need to take your self-custody seriously, and Unchained Capital can help you with this. They are take removing single points of failure seriously and so you can create a two of three multi-signature setup with the unchained vault meaning you create a setup where there are three keys and you hold two of them in different locations they can help you with the setup and make this easy for you they've got a concierge onboarding program so they will ship you the hardware they'll do a call with you and teach you how to withdraw from the exchange into keys that you control So that website is unchained.com slash concierge. Use the code Levera to get a discount on your concierge onboarding program. And now back to the show with Alex. I see. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I see it, I think it is a vital step for many Bitcoiners who are, let's say, if you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking... I've never done this before. I would say definitely you need to learn how to use it. I personally do use a Bitcoin node in terms of receiving payments and things like that. I find it really handy. But, you know, I think it's a graduation step for a lot of people. And uh, depending on your situation, you'll you'll find different scenarios. So, for example, I use BTC Pay Server, which is an easy way. You know, so, for example, people can easily go to like voltage.cloud and spin up their Bitcoin node there. I know that's a cloud node, but you might be a merchant or whatever. It might be different scenarios there. Um, but to your broader point, I think, it was true to say that the futures markets on the fork coins. So I know Bitfinex, for example, had, a, they called it B1X and B2X around the Segwit 2X debacle, which came later in the year in 2017. And I, as I, off the top of my head, I think that it was something like 0.15 for the Segwit 2X coin. And it was something like 0.85 for the Segwit, you know, normal, just Bitcoin, uh, Segwit 1X coin or B1X coin. And so that arguably helped the market figure out. But like you said, it's possible also that there's paper Bitcoin, but that said, you would have to see that across all the different exchanges too. So you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see if something were to happen like that today, how would it shake out? Well, who knows? Um, but anyway, I also wanted to get your thoughts in terms of updates on some of the Ethereum centralization, Lido staking derivatives stuff. So listeners, I'll put the show note the uh, earlier show there, but just I guess the the very high level summary is. As I understand your argument, uh, let me just quickly recapitulate that for our listeners as well. It's that there are centralization pressures within Ethereum. One of those is this concept of staking derivatives. So we're seeing this liquid staking derivatives where there is centralization, arguably being driven into one of the parties called LIDO. And they have, I believe it's over 90% of the liquid staked ETH in, and this represents some future potential governance risk around what happens with Ethereum. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Firstly, do you agree with that summary? And then what are some of your updated thoughts on this since we last spoke?
1: Right. Um, I think since we last spoke, um, I, I've just been validated in my thesis times and times again. It's not being uh, it's not being recognized as a, a very public um, issue where even Ethereum Foundation um the engineers and, and developers are acknowledging it as an existential threat uh, to uh, to Ethereum. Uh, so we've come a long way, you know. Uh, you, you mentioned ninety percent of uh, the liquid staking share uh, that hasn't really moved. Uh It's always been dominant and it should be expected to remain dominant. Uh, but I think one of the big conversation items is: last time we spoke, Lido was fifteen percent of the overall stake Ethereum. Uh, amongst all validators and that was just a little less than uh perhaps a little less than a year ago really today it sits at 30 32 so it's a 100% increase uh in, in the last year and and generally if you look at things you, you look at the other numbers um i think more than 60% of the new uh eth that is being staked you know on a daily basis is actually still being added to Lido um, so the centralization and um, the dynamics that uh, would encourage people to uh, further centralize into uh, what I believe will now be a monopoly are clearer than ever. And with the merge possibly um, coming by the end of the year, it's going to be extremely, extremely interesting uh, to see this play out because while people might, you know people in ethereum camp might be very very excited about the prospects of the merge i think this mm-hmm. is really when the the dynamics that spur the centralization of lido really kicks into gear um and this is where you see um opportunity for lido uh, as a validator to start capturing things like um mev in a much much significant way and I wouldn't be surprised if within a year from, uh, from this interview, we, uh, from this podcast, we're looking at Lido has uh, owning over 50% of the stake on the Ethereum network, at which point it's, it's painfully transparent and blatant that, um, the claims of neutrality of Ethereum are significantly diminished. And I, I, I think the big question mark though is, um, that remains Is, is how does that ultimately play out? You know, people, uh, people have always fantasized about Ethereum crashing down in a big ball of fire. I'm personally of the opinion that it's, it's very, very unlikely, uh, to happen. It seems very much to me like Ethereum is destined, um, to, to be captured, um, by, I think the interests that remain, it's, it's a little unclear to me who will be, um, driving uh, who will be behind the wheels um, of Ethereum five years from now if, it, if really it survives? And I think it's possible uh, that it survives that long. Um, and I've put a bit of a thesis this this morning on on Twitter. I've been thinking about uh, some of this stuff. And I was reviewing a couple of tweets in preparation for, for, for this chat. And I just sort of had this Eureka, uh, eureka moment to me where it really crystallized uh, the difference between a system like Ethereum and uh, a system proof of stake like Ethereum and, and something like proof of work, and the, I think I guess the exercise that I'm driving uh, that I'm driving people at is considering what happens in a highly centralized, highly sort of almost monopolized context or scenario for both of them, where you know you have perhaps fifty one percent of the hash rate that has consolidated under a, a single uh, mining pool in, in Bitcoin. What happens then? Well, what we think happens then is that, really, in the best case scenario, nothing uh, nothing happens because you know the underlying incentive thesis that was there from day one from Satoshi is that even if people manage to obtain that amount of uh, hash rate, as such a such a significant amount of hash rate, the incentives are people to continue to work within the uh, within the rules of the system because it is profitable for them to do so. Correct? And in proof of stake, there are two incentives at play that challenge each other. Um, and the, the main fundamental difference is that proof-of-stake validators, proof-of-stake block producers, which is really what they are, are not only concerned about selling you inclusion into a block, they are also selling you priority in terms of your transaction. And obviously, given all that we know about the state of MEV, of maximally extractable value uh, on Ethereum and, and this notion that because of the applications that are popular on Ethereum require sort of instant finality to a certain extent where you've got um, many AMM, many, many exchange, decentralized, quote-unquote, decentralized exchange where arbitrage opportunities are available. And if a certain actor recognizes that opportunity before another and manages to get their transaction that captures this uh, an inefficiency in the market before another, then they can extract uh, the associate value of that, and that turned that has turned into a game where miners are now obviously uh, as the as the ones effectively responsible for transaction ordering uh, on, on the Ethereum network. Um, miners play a central part in, into this uh, extraction, extraction game, but this extraction game—if really the prospects of Ethereum are to be fruitful—you're talking about billions of dollars, like a billion dollar business. One of the main, one of the largest, fastest growing industry uh, in Ethereum is, is, is MEV. And the problem with that is that under a system like Lido, where you have the staking derivative that creates, that incentivizes, that has network effect, that incentivizes centralization because of liquidity, first and foremost. And we had a great example of that during the Terra Luna uh, crisis. Um, and Three Arrows Capital crisis, where uh, you saw the uh, STE, which is the uh, Lido staking derivative, and um, the um, the STE and ETH uh, pool in uh, what what they call the curve pool, which is this liquidity pool, which very basically allows people to sell their STE for ETH for Ethereum or sell uh, their Ethereum for the, the, the staking derivative. And this exists because it is not possible until uh, until a certain time after the merge for people to unstake their uh, Ethereum. People can stake today to, to, to Lido, but cannot um, withdraw that stake. And that's the same for every staking setup, whether it's as a personal at home user or other validating pool. And so what happened is that there was a lot of volatility in the market and uh, the peg, which is, you know, one stake eat is supposed to represent a claim on uh, one eat. And this liquidity in this pool tried to maintain that one for one peg because of the liquidity, the peg dropped significantly, not in a, not in a perhaps um, very dangerous way, um, but this just goes to illustrate that Staking derivatives are winner-take-all sort of formula because of that need for liquidity. If the f- liquidity around staking derivatives had been fractioned um, during this event of the last couple of months ago, then this would have significantly, perhaps, damaged each and every single one of them being significantly smaller. So there's the, there's this this network effect of staking derivatives at play, and then there's the network effect of um, of MEV where in whoever controls a large portion of the stake on the network, has the opportunity to capture more MEV purely because of uh, uh, effectively uh, the, the concept of variance, right? It's concept uh, the concept of variance that we know exists also uh, within Bitcoin is one of the reasons why people yeah. get into a group uh, together and pool it is because otherwise uh, as a single miner, perhaps almost regardless of your hashing power, there's this, there's this an effect at, at play where unless you've got significant amount of bashing power you're more likely to be less lucky um and, and so there's this there's this concept of luck in in the ability to to produce block that obviously the larger you scale up and the bigger you are um, the more likely you are to get lucky and the more likely you are to get the opportunity to create more blocks um in in a perhaps disproportional way uh to your stake slash hashing power the disproportional uh, aspect is even more important in mev where mev fluctuates um, and is not necessarily a smooth distribution yeah. so the opportunity for to capture a, a block of um of mev that has much larger value than the next block or the 110 blocks be, be, uh, uh, behind then it leads to large takers and entities like Lido in the future to be able to consolidate, uh, the capital that's pulled into their infrastructure because they're able through this MEV to offer larger staking rewards to, uh, to their users and also use that capital to bolster their own investment, uh, in, into, um, into capture of MEV. Capture of MEV is effectively the digital equivalent of, uh, mining specialization. It is uh, a little bit uh, the idea that uh, perhaps in analog ways that if you take a Bitmain, for example, that would have such an outsized share of the market, that they would be able to get so much capital that they'd be reinvesting into their chips and, and be able to gain such an outsized advantage because they, they are able to use that proprietary chip that's more efficient but fortunately because bitcoin is and proof of work is sort of bound by the laws of physics you know there's really only like there's diminishing returns in terms of um, specialization of, of course like you know you could get uh more efficient chips uh, your operational pro, uh, your operational process can be more efficient uh and more cost effective um but the margins are extremely tight in, in mev the margin are as big as the market is um, and 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 so uh, once you're able to capture more uh, of of that activity than any other player, you consolidate in a very 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 dangerous way for uh, for for the network. So ultimately, you are likely to create a monopoly. It's effect, It's it's very likely that the natural state uh, of proof of state is a natural monopoly that is driven by the staking derivatives and that is driven by this market. Of of MEV. And by creating a natural monopoly, um, you enable rent seeking. uh, And you um, enable block producer, sorry, the block producer to create a market for transaction priority that is completely separate from their responsibility to include you into blocks, right? And the reason why that's important is that within the silo of transaction priority the single monopolistic block producer is allowed to do effectively whatever it is they want and that activity is mostly confined to near-term settlement transaction right because the idea is that you do not necessarily want to censor indefinitely a transaction or double even if you attain 51% or if you're monopoly you're effectively the only person on network producing block and you wouldn't want to you know start mining an in, invalid block or double spending because this flies in the face of the social consensus right this is when whoever runs an ethereum node might step up to the plate and say hey you guys are obviously acting um, in uh, malicious ways they might slash you, uh, that's within the scope of what you're doing, slash your stake means you lose money, or they might choose to fork the network and you know blacklist uh, certain validators and, and stuff like that. So it's a risky game for validators to play when really all they need to do is sit at the top of this economy and just start raking in money by um, being this rent-seeking entity. That enables you, if you want, Stefan, to get your block included as a priority in the next one. Well, why don't you pay me a, a little more money uh, than uh, the other people that are in line trying to capture, for example, that opportunity, that NVV opportunity? You can create, you can create private mempools where certain privileged people um, would broadcast their transactions strictly to you uh, so that you may include them um, in, into the next blocks in approval in, in a prioritized way and that's very very important because if you manage to build this private mempool of transaction where people are manually submitting their transaction to you and only to you then that further that further consolidates your advantage as uh, an, an entity that that attempts to uh, capture mev right because if people start submitting their transactions their high value transactions to you these are transactions that are not submitted to the other potential competitors, other validators, and these are these these this is value that they can never capture. So you can solve it in that way, but but really more importantly, and where it gets all twisted, and you can see very very different outcomes is well, what if I decide that I don't want you, Stefan, to be the one to capture that opportunity? What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to pay. I'm actually going to pay the monopoly the monopoly block producer to censor your transaction. I want to make sure that, you know, we've been playing the same MVV games. I know that you know what you're doing, but I'm seeing this one transaction here, which I really want to get my hands on. I'm afraid that perhaps you've also spotted it. So I'm going to make sure that you're not able to capture it. I'm going to pay a premium on top of that. And you can see very quickly how uh, this uh, turns into a bidding war uh, between who wants to get their block included who wants to censor the other party for uh, for whatever reason, and when I say censorship, I only mean you know small uh, near term censorship uh, because by the time the opportunity is gone when I've captured it, the idea that you've been censored you know it's, 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 it's a transaction that uh, provided no value to you uh, other than if you were able to capture it in that moment you know it's not like censor, it's not like censoring a user that's trying to send money to a third party and um you know whose transaction will never go through it's a temporary it's a censorship but it's enough to have its effect and so the monopoly block producer is able to to get away with a lot of that stuff creates bidding wars between various users in this massive MEV ecosystem and by doing that further consolidate their power But most importantly, further consolidate the capital within the network, right? You really have a system where you have these overloads, lords, where you um, have no choice but to pay taxes. You have to pay taxes because you have to be staking your Ethereum um, in, in in, in this world where potentially because of staking derivatives and how easy it is, if you're not staking your Ethereum, you're getting your share of the supply diluted. It's effective inflation as far as you're concerned, or at least your purchasing power diminishes compared to people who are staking with Lido. But Lido as an entity itself also derives a fraction of that staking rewards. So they charge you effectively a tax and because you have a natural monopoly, then there's opportunity for them to leverage very large taxation amounts. So. You know, it, it's, it, it's all a bit of a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a bit of a mess. And like I said, it's been publicly acknowledged by very significant, uh, Ethereum people. Um, there's been, uh, demands that Lido caps their, um, stakeable supply at, at, at 25%. And there's been a vote, um, on, on, uh, on the Lido DAO recently where people suggested that perhaps they should, um, limit uh, the actual uh, percentage, their actual percentage of supply, and well, what do you know? It was almost unanimous in terms of users voting against that proposal, because it's not within their incentives to do so. It was practically it was a landslide. It was ninety nine percent of users voting against that proposal, and so they they have this. Um, there they, they really is the incentive uh, problem at play within Ethereum, where I think they're driving into a wall, but unfortunately, it's a wall that you know is it, like I said, it's not something that's going to explode to uh, today and, and uh, sorry tomorrow and will say, hey, that was it. I think it actually leads to a very perverse system, a very pernicious system. Um, you know, when when people make the argument that like Ethereum is fiat and is likely to be captured by bankers, I think there's a very plausible argument uh, where, where where that's the case. Because why, you know, people have this fantasy that, uh, governments are trying to kill Ethereum, uh, that Gary Gensler is, is trying to kill Ethereum, where if we truly believe those government entities and the, the, those fiat officials to be what we think they are, it, may, it makes a lot more sense for them, you know, to capture these networks and profit from, and, and, you know, prop up these networks as much as they can for as longer as they can because there is an opportunity for them to sit on the money spigot, and uh, it's 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 a new form. It's it's just a, a different model uh, for them to to extract value uh, out of people, and it just makes too much sense for them to leverage that rather than try to to, extinguish to ban it, it.
0: Let's say, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's yeah. a yeah. There's a lot of points there, and I think you could argue that there is this regulatory capture aspect, and that let's say. There may be now. Of course, there are different departments of government. So let's say one department of government might be trying, might well not like some certain project, and another might be thinking, "Oh, I'm you know this is an opportunity for us. This is this might eventually be more power, more money, etc." Right? So uh, more uh, fame, prestige, whatever, whatever the incentive is for that person. Now it also reminds me because back in i believe it was late 2013 or early 2014 there was a ghash.io saga right where you know at the time mm-hmm. uh bitcoin mining and so this one miner was getting uh, i think close to 50 percent of the network in terms of mining but i think uh it was it's it's kind of an interesting little parallel that bitcoin had a moment like this in history but of course they i think they voluntarily restricted their supply or their mining percentage down and uh in this case The users of this protocol, almost 99% or higher than 99% voted against that. Now, I have heard of one idea from the Ethereum camp. They've got this idea of, um, as a response to this concept of the the centralization, LIDO, etc., this proposer-builder separation. So... I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that idea. So as I understand, they, they would bid in real time to win the right to capture MEV in any validator's block, whether it's part of Lido or some homestaker, as an example. So I'm curious if you've looked into any of that or have any response to that particular argument.
1: Yeah, I have. I think it's a decent attempt uh, to sort of part-mentalize uh, the division of labor within this uh, this MEV uh, uh, market or more generally speaking block production uh, block production but um certainly one of the driving motive uh, behind that is uh, the existence of uh, of MEV and it seems to me like although there might be good intent behind it from uh, a lot of some of the people working on that it all seems to me like a masquerade because there is no because of the mon I mean because of the monopolistic um, incentive for for staking and staking derivatives. It makes a lot more sense for a dominant staking entity or dominant set of validators like Lido to vertical vertically integrate uh, across proposer builder relayers searchers. And those are all terms, you know, those are all different entities uh, or ideally from their perspective, those are different entities uh, where they are hoping to create a market that will create competition uh, amongst uh, the people involved, uh, the actors involved in into the MEV business, um, which hopefully, you know, will distribute it enough to avoid centralization. But the problem is that the incentives are are, are just not are, are just not there. There there is uh, very likely to be, like I said, um, a single monopolistic relay or a single monopolistic proposer. And what's going to happen there is that certainly Lido might so Lido might be contributing themselves in terms of searchers, and searchers are literally the one that dig through transactions on the network, observe uh, observe all of the, um, uh, distributed, uh, decentralized exchange activity, and, you know, really spot those opportunities Uh, and and the rest of the, and the rest of the, the, the rest of the actors are responsible for putting those blocks into bond, what they call bundles. And it's actually effectively constructing a block, you know, uh, effectively trying to construct the block that extracts as much value as possible so that, uh, the validators can then use that block to add it to the chain. So without getting further more into technical details, I think this alleviates, one of the reasons why they're doing this is this alleviates one of the major issues with Ethereum at the moment is that block production, block production uh, as it currently stands effectively has a single centralized point of failure in uh, uh, the flashbots infrastructure. And the flashbots infrastructure is what currently allows miners receive or, or create an auction market for these MEV bundles for these MEV transactions, and offer the opportunity for anyone that's trying to partake into this to submit their bundles uh, directly to miners, uh, so that they can put them into block. And obviously, depending on the value of them, prioritize one over the other. And then there's a bidding, uh, there's a bidding game going on. And th- and the problem is that sitting sort of right in between these searchers and these people that are putting together the bundles and the miners is um flashbots relays um which are the ones effectively responsible for coordinating this this entire dance and flashbots relays um as far as i understand it you know are nothing more than software running on the cloud um, a certain probably aws infrastructure or whatever that is most likely in a redundant way, most likely in a way that's, you know, fairly secure and airtight. But certainly when we're talking about billions and billions of dollars of value and, and systems that are supposed to be uh, built in, in trust minimized ways uh, to have such an obvious um, central point of failure is, is quite perplexing. And even more so that they've made the decision now um, with proof of stake. To, um, I, have made that tread, uh, that thread just yesterday, I believe, but to, you know, effectively bake in that part of the software into, um, the various Ethereum clients. And it was already, um, I mean, it was already kind of used by most, if not all miners. I would, I would assume that the, the, the original iteration of the Flashbot software is used by all miners. Um, but now they've, they've went, uh, they went so far as to putting that into the, not the reference, well, effectively, yes, as an API in the reference client. So in the way that enforces, uh, not enforces, but makes it even more likely that every single validators uh, down the line will use it. And this centralized relay will still be a main main. Mainstay of the MEV infrastructure until they plan to introduce this prop- proposer uh, builder separation where you might have then entities that can volunteer as relayers and create a market for, uh, for relayers. But uh, it's, it's, it's unclear to me how that's going to play out. Um, I think there will be, I think generally speaking, I see it playing out two ways. People are going to get very more vocal about it or, uh, I think there's this sort of, you no. Know, it's, I've, I've been rereading like, um, Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand's, uh, book and, you know, I, it feels to me like in the Ethereum world, uh, development world and ecosystem, there's a bit of a, who is John Galt, um, you know, sort of dynamic playing out where people are like, you know, why bother? Like, you know, like, We'll just figure it out, you know, like why, like people are actually, um, not dejected, but, um, there's a bit of an apathy in terms of the conditions of, uh, of the network and, and the trends that we're seeing. Uh, I was, I was listening to a podcast a couple of months ago where it was a couple of guys from the Ethereum foundation and, and the very notable and popular Hasu, um, where they were openly uh, entertaining, uh, cartelization, uh, on Ethereum and almost, you know, sort of like war is slave, slavery and slavery is peace and sort of like trying to make those, uh, um, trying to make arguments for why this, uh, would not be such a bad state of things. So I think it's going to be, uh, perhaps an upcoming battle where more fundamentalists are going, uh, you know, who are perhaps more aligned with decentralization start to raise their voice and, uh, and then it's Then there'll be a, um, it'll be an interesting argument. Um, but there's so much, there, there really is so much dead weight. There's so much, um, people have invested so much, uh, into that, uh, into that venture that, you know, there, there, there comes to a point where it's this sunk, uh, sunk cost fallacy where they will just play along with whatever um, uh, whatever happens because um, the admission of failure has become very 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 costly, and so you'll have this internal dynamic, uh, and then obviously you'll have uh, the competitors uh, that I think you know we've seen come up in, in this in this last cycle and are are, are probably likely to uh, try to snatch network effect away from Ethereum. So I'm interested to see it play out. Um, but unfortunately for the very vocal, uh, maxis and anti, uh, blockchain crypto scams on, on, on Twitter, I have to say you'll have to be, uh, you'll have to be con- to continue to be very vigilant because these things. Are, are unlikely to
0: go away and um, yeah and I think to your point as well about the competition that ethereum will be facing there may be other more openly centralized solutions that just are cheaper and maybe people will just use those I mean of course it depends whether whether gambling whether the leverage is not that I have an issue with gambling per se I just think there's this perception that oh look how much TVL oh, look how many transactions I think they're not really comparing the same thing as I think we've spoken about right like Bitcoin, is seen differently, rightly so, and rightly so. Uh, so I think that's probably how I think the key part to understand is that we're looking at this fundamental new money, this new thing with certain assurances that really nothing else gives us. Um, you know, And we're living in this world where there's a war on cash, where literally a couple of days, like maybe just a couple of days ago, I saw this news article about how Emirates is wanting to now, Emirates the airline is looking to, decrease their flight frequency to Nigeria because they can't repatriate the money back because maybe the Nigerian government is trying to keep the US dollar there because they don't want to give that back. So it's kind of like, and it's such an obvious use case here where Bitcoin, you know, obviously people could, of course, maybe, you know, you could argue about how big Bitcoin is today. But I think there's just that fundamental use case there where people just need to be able to transact. And They may need to do it under adversarial conditions. They may need to do it even under conditions where let's say the normal banking system is not working for them or where the government controlled banking system is not working for them. And that speaks to some of the issues around centralization that we've spoken of. So uh, I think probably a, a good spot to finish up here um, I enjoyed the chat. Any any last points you wanted to mention for listeners? Anything else to keep an eye on?
1: Um, I, I mean, I will say just to wrap up what I was just talking about is like, um, and, and perhaps we, we didn't get to touch too much on that, but I, I've made the case um, that it's actually very, from my perspective, as much as most people um, hate the, the prospect of it, I think we're likely to live um, with a multi-chain uh, world for uh, still quite some time. And, um, with that in mind, I, I would encourage people to, um, to keep an open mind, uh, in, in terms of, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, to turn into uh, a, a Yudi or Eric here, but there are use cases that can be served by building distributed consensus technology, uh, whether that's via blockchain or via a, uh, like we said, shaman, uh, bank, uh, of, uh, the uh, federation. There are opportunities for um, Bitcoin to be perhaps leveraged down the line in ways that might make you uncomfortable, but that are just a consequence of market and and this permissionless aspect of it. And and so I I think it's very unlikely that the current actors of this blockchain, the current main proponent of this multi-chain world exists five to 10 years from now. uh, Most of them will likely be extinct because they are fundamentally based on flawed economic premises flawed technical technological premises but i have personally the feeling that we will be exploring that in certain respect in bitcoin um in the bitcoin ecosystem more and more and i know some people are that are building very interesting um products that uh, that that leverage concepts like that but products that are Fully incentive, uh, fully sort of aligned with Bitcoin, with with the Bitcoin ethos. And there's no uh, shitcoin involved. And I'm not, you know, I'm not setting myself up to announce my next shitcoin. But um, (laughs) I, although it might sound like that now that I'm listening to myself chat but yeah i just encourage people to keep an open mind there's going to be again uh, stay stay vigilant of course because we haven't seen our last cycle of of scams and and ship tokens and and new narratives but the bitcoin technological ecosystem should be encouraged to learn from whatever actual applicable technology is being developed in in uh, in other spheres and see how they can leverage that for to, the, to their benefit. Things like Fetimin, um, its not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. A lot of people aren't going to give up on on-chain transaction self-validation and things like that. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a hubris uh, to the idea that our conception of Bitcoin today is what should be the conception and the approach and the use case of Bitcoin tomorrow for the billions of people uh, that are going to follow.
0: Right, and a lot of that plays into what kind of scaling techniques are available. Some of that will be custodial. Obviously, I prefer as much as possible. It's not custodial, um, but we'll see what happens. So uh, Alex, thanks for joining me. Listeners, make sure you follow Alex on Twitter. His handle is BurgeAlex4. I'll put the links in the show notes. Alex, thanks for joining me.
1: Appreciate
0: it, Stefan. Have a good day. Get the show notes at com slash 403. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.